At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Hey, it's Kristen. This week, as I am getting ready to move for the third and hopefully final time this pandemic, we are revisiting an episode that we ran around this time last year with Priya Krishna, which was ostensibly about her quick electric cherry tomato and chili pickle from Indianish, the book that she wrote with her mom, Ritu. This remains my very favorite way to cook and eat little tomatoes. But Priya and I also talked about all kinds of other things, from her leaving Bon Appetit to the ways that she would have approached her cookbook differently in 2020 versus 2017, and maybe most poignantly about family. Priya is a very good and very wise daughter, and as I'm about to uproot my own family once again, this was the episode that I wanted to listen to, to be reminded of the insightful ways that Priya appreciates hers. Also, we both cried in the course of this episode, but in a good way. I hope that listening to it is as cathartic for you as it was for me, and if not, there's still a lot of delicious recipe talk and good stories. Talk to you soon. It'll just be from a new closet next time. Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For almost a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. On the Genius Recipe Tapes, we're sharing the behind-the-scenes moments from talking with the geniuses themselves that we couldn't quite squeeze into the column or video. The extra genius tricks, the off-road riffs, and the personal stories that actually have nothing to do with the recipe that week. Hi, Priya. Hi, Kristen. It's so good to see you. You too. Where are you right now? I'm in my apartment in Brooklyn. Okay. I saw on Instagram that for a while you were staying at your parents' place in Dallas, right? Yes. I got back in June. How was that? It looked extremely comforting. I mean, it was it was really nice. Like my mom and I cooked dinner every night. My dad put out cheese plates. We had happy hour. Like my parents really went above and beyond to sort of make living at home feel really comforting when I was like an adult woman moving back in with my parents <laughs> ostensibly. <laughs> was it sort of a flashback to putting together your cookbook? Yeah oh definitely but it was even more enjoyable this time around because instead of like chasing my mom around for, for measurements and like making sure that she wasn't secretly adding coriander to a dish when it wasn't in the ingredient list I could just enjoy her food and not have to monitor 
or like write things down or do any work. I could just enjoy it. Well, to take a step back and speaking of your cookbook, would you mind just sharing a little bit about the cookbook and what the process was like for you to decide to write a cookbook with your mom? So my cookbook is a collection of the Indian American food that my mom made for me growing up in Dallas, Texas. Um, I wouldn't say that I am a, uh, I would call myself a recipe developer. I'm definitely more of a journalist. And, you know, when I was working at the food magazine, Lucky Peach, and contributing some of my mom's recipes to the magazine and to the cookbooks, I got a lot of feedback that my mom's recipes felt really accessible, that, you know, a lot of folks didn't realize that Indian food, cooking Indian food at home was actually very, very simple, which which it is. The Indian food I grew up eating was simple, accessible, bright, flavorful, vibrant, all the things you want um, for your everyday cooking. And so I was approached by an editor who said, I would love a, you know, a cookbook of your mom's recipes, something that shows Indian food to be not only flavorful, but dynamic and sort of showing what it means to be an immigrant family living in the States and sort of what happens to food when it travels outside of its home country and you know all of the ways that my mom took these memories of the indian food she grew up eating in india and sort of translated it in america according to what she had access to which is you know i feel like what what every immigrant has to do and the way that you described how your mom cooked i i just don't know how she did it after working full days being able to come home and make dinner every night in 20 minutes without spilling anything on her beautiful clothes. As a newish mom now, I just, it, it seems completely unfathomable to me. It feels unfathomable to me too. And there were moments during quarantine when my mom and I would be cooking and I would be so exhausted. And I'd be like, how did you do this after like getting your kids ready for school, driving to work, going to work, coming back, I remember my sister and I wanted food immediately when she walked in the door. <laughs> and so she had to quickly whip something up. And she was so insistent on like, we have to have a fresh meal every night for dinner. And uh, yeah, it was, it, it feels more and more unfathomable as time goes on <laughs> to both me and my mom. Like, was your mom, you know, rushing around the kitchen, throwing things together? Or was she, did she seem like she kind of had a plan and just was making it happen? She was not rushing. My mom <laughs> made it look incredibly easy. She would come home, pour herself a glass of wine, put the ABBA on our CD player and get to work cooking. And it was, she always was so chill, so methodical. She knew exactly what she was going to do. When my parents immigrated here, ABBA was just all, all the rage. My dad talks about like watching baseball games and the song Fernando would come on whenever this like one pitcher no this one like batter from Los Angeles would name Fernando would come out on the field they like have all sorts of stories and songs that they associate with specific moments it's really sweet it was pretty amazing I mean I it was interesting my parents sort of um my dad was the one who picked me up from school who came to all my soccer games my mom wasn't super involved in that part of my life. Sure, she wasn't there for like my debate tournaments, but like instead she was sort of setting an example of what it meant to be a successful working parent. And I feel really grateful for that. I know you, you said that basically like these are your mom's recipes and you did the testing and, and the writing. How many of the recipes 
did you immediately recognize from growing up with them? And how many were newer riffs that your mom had made or that you came up with together? I would say about 85% were stuff I grew up with and 15% were kind of newer riffs she had come up with since I left the house to go to college. And what would be some examples of either one that stand out in your mind? So, you know, a very OG classic was my mom's Dahi Toast, which is sourdough bread filled with yogurt mixed with chilies and onions and cilantro. You sandwich it between bread, you griddle it on both sides, and you cover it with fried mustard seeds and curry leaves and dip it in ketchup and chutney. That was like a classic. One that I, I guess I hadn't remembered my mom doing, but she had started doing more and more, was the, the sog feta which is like a classic sog paneer. And my mom's spinach gravy is just like out of this world good. And instead of cubes of paneer, you put cubes of feta. And I remember cooking it and like not, like not really thinking much that it was going to, like it just, it, like, I, I, I don't know. I just like, I was just like testing and, you know, going through my day and that recipe kind of like stopped me dead in my tracks when I tasted it. And I had like completely forgotten how good it was. I knew that was going to be one of my favorites, but then when we did the photo shoot and we saw how like unphotogenic it was, I was like, oh man, people aren't going to make this. And fast forward, it's the most made recipe in the entire book. <laughs> That's so great. Why do you think that is? Um, I, I mean, ultimately I think like people love things that feel familiar, but have like a fun twist. I feel like that is the key to most recipes you see that, that hit. And it like, a part of me is like, uh, it's like familiar because like sag paneer is like one of the takeout staples that came to define Indian American cuisine and Indian American cuisine is so much of that. But I believe really strongly this is a delicious dish and it was one of my all-time favorites when I was cooking. And so I was really excited to see it take off. Well, and the feta is so different and it really is bringing something completely new to that spinach gravy like you you hadn't seen anything like that anywhere else right of people substituting feta in I had seen people substitute for other cheeses like um halloumi is popular because it's sort of like a, a firm cheese I had seen people do like mozzarella although the mozzarella kind of melts a little bit like if they do like a hard mozzarella I hadn't really seen feta I'm sure enterprising desi moms have made sag paneer with feta and that we're not the first people to do it but it felt novel and exciting to me it sounds incredible actually that's one that I haven't made yet but it will be soon it's really good and it's really been amazing to see all the ways that people have riffed on that like one person made the sag feta and then mixed a little bit of coconut milk in with the spinach gravy and that sounded so 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 delicious wow have you made that version I haven't made it, but I need to. I always have like several cans of coconut milk in my pantry. I feel like you can throw coconut milk in a lot of meals and make it taste really good. <laughs> <laughs> what are the the dishes that you make the most out of the book? Um, the the most basic dal, which is like the first dal recipe in the book. That recipe, the alu gobi and the kachumber are probably because that is like the staple meal I grew up having dal chowl, algobi, gachumber, like salad, your like vegetables, your lentils, and your rice. All you need in a meal. Perfect. Um, was there a moment that you realized that you wanted to call the book Indianish? I know you said it was a placeholder, but 
Was there a moment that you realized, no, that's, that's it? I feel like it was really, it was not only the publisher that was really jazzed on the idea, but like my dad sent me like a long text one day after I sold the book. My dad just like sends me texts with his like ruminations <laughs> on life. And I remember he sent me a text being like, Indianish. It describes not just our food, but our whole identity. And like he went on, it was this long rant. I ended up including like most of that in the intro of the book it was so true he was like it's not just the food it's like every part of our lives like our lifestyle is Indianish. um and that i just thought that was really sweet and after he said that i was like okay i guess i have to name it that and he also noted that Indianish was very seo friendly as long as i put a hyphen between indian and ish my dad is like a tech guy through and through so i was like all right sold <laughs> You're the best daughter. You listen to your parents. You obviously involve them in so much of your work. I'm, I aspire to be a daughter like you. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think I'm as good of a daughter as you think I am, but I try. I try to like make up for my high school angstiness <laughs> every day. <laughs> you know, it's, it's easy to assume that if you're going to make a cookbook with your family, that you must be best friends with them and, and be super close in every possible way. But I, I really appreciate your honesty that it's it's much more nuanced than that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I grew up in like the Gilmore Girls era where like everyone wanted to be like Rory and Lorelai. And I was like, why can't I talk about these like intimate issues with my parents? And it's just a different relationship. Like I don't see my parents as friends. I see them as my parents, as like authority figures. And I think like as time has gone by, you know, as you start to realize your parents aren't like perfect people, um, you kind of start to break down that barrier a little bit, but I don't know. I just, we often like ask our parents to do so much and to like be the perfect person for everything. And I think one thing I realized is sort of where, where that sweet spot of not setting my parents up for failure and like not setting myself up for failure with my parents. And I think that's, it's like important to recognize all that your parents are and also all that they aren't. Like your parents are amazing, but like they can't do everything for you. They can't be everything for you. And that you can have a really meaningful relationship with them in spite of all of their flaws and your flaws. Totally. I'm like <laughs> getting a little choked up now. I just, I just spent a weekend with my parents and like, it, I feel like you're teaching me ways that I should you know, just be more or open to our differences. I'm not perfect at it. And like, there are so many moments in Dallas where I would like lose my patience with my dad or like find my mom to be overly neurotic. And I'm, and I like did plenty of stuff to annoy them too. But, you know, there, there was always like that moment during the day or at the end of the day where I would just like have like appreciation for like exactly the people that they were. Now I'm getting emotional. This is, <laughs> who would have thunk it? This is supposed to be like a, a like an Oprah style podcast. I know. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that is something that you do in your work is you really like open up your your world and your family to to people, and it's it's a really beautiful thing, and it really like um, it shows you as a as a whole person, not just as the, the recipes that you write or the stories you publish. Yeah, thank you. That's really sweet. Of course. <laughs> um, you're setting a great example for the rest of us. I saw in the, the recent conversation that you published with Yawande in 
Bon Appetit that you had, you know, kind of fought to have every language be not in italics. So I don't know if you want to speak a little bit more about that decision, but also I'm curious if there was a process for you of deciding how to title your recipes, you know, how much to include English versus Hindi and like where to to prioritize those things. It's funny, my publishing company, I have to say, like compared to like a lot of the stories I've heard, I feel like they were they were pretty accommodating with what I felt comfortable with and what felt right to me in terms of naming and italics and so on. I actually like look at my book and I think that I did too much explanation in the titles. I think if I could do it all over again, I would get rid of the parentheses descriptions. It was just like I kept looking in Indian cookbooks. It would say like, Kitchity, rice and lentil porridge. What is the reason for putting those explainers in parentheses? It's mainly to like make your recipes feel palatable for a white audience. But at the same time, like there are photos, there are ingredient lists. People can surmise what a dish is. They don't need like a watered down explanation that like inevitably like doesn't doesn't do justice to that recipe. Like in my book, there's a dish called Gardi, and it says turmeric yogurt soup in the in parentheses, but I don't think that that, I don't think that that does justice to how delicious and like crave worthy and awesome that dish, which like sort of evades definition. Like it's not a soup, it's not a stew. It's like something entirely different. Like there are real limitations to the English language when it comes to describing non-English dishes. And I wish that I had leaned, leaned more, more into that and sort of like embraced the name of those dishes because I don't think I don't think we need the parentheses explainers anymore well it's also such a long process making a book too um from the time that you sell the proposal to the and through all the the writing and editing and then until it comes out like you probably you're not the same person by the time it publishes as and like by the time you're done doing book tour and all that as you were when you started writing it and proposing it too so it seems like every book you do will be a learning process like that. Totally. I mean, I read parts of my book now and I'm like, I am so different than the person who wrote this head note. I was reading the head note for the recipe that we'll be talking about. And even still like in smaller ways, I was like, oh, this definitely reads like 20, 2017 Priya. <laughs> what, what is the difference there? How would you describe what 2020 Priya would write and 2017 Priya wouldn't. It's funny, in 2017, I thought I was pretty unapologetic about my food and my identity. And yet I was still putting things in parentheses. I still read my head notes and I feel like I'm directly speaking to a white audience. And I don't think I realized all of the subtle ways that writers of color often like train themselves to like whitewash their own language to like accommodate an audience other than themselves. And I think 2020 Priya is like a lot more um, empowered to like center myself and my family and my identity in the recipes. And if people want to make this delicious recipe, they will go out and find all of the spices. And, you know, there are certain things that there just are not substitutions for. Like there is no substitution for asphatita, even though in the book it says, I think it says onion powder. Like, yeah, you can use onion powder, but it's not, it's not asphatita. It's, it's not that distinct, pungent, savory taste. And it, and it definitely like, took me some, some years to, to be comfortable with that. And I mean, it, it, it also like takes privilege to be unapologetic about recipes. Like if you're contributing to a 
a prominent food website and a white editor is asking for substitutions, you're going to give substitutions. You're not, I mean, if you're, if you're not, if you don't know better, you won't know to push back. And I feel like now I have the institutional knowledge to push back. And has that changed at all, especially recently with the, the process that you've been going through with negotiations with, with Condé Nast Entertainment and then ultimately deciding not to make videos with them? Has that, even in that like period, has anything changed for you and your goals about what kind of content you want to be producing from here on out? I mean, I think I recognized that like, I think I, I fully recognized that when I walked away from video, I was doing so again, because I had the privilege to walk away. Like I have contacts, I have a platform, I'm going to be just fine. And I think like it has solidified that like the purpose of my career, I believe should be to make the food world a more inclusive place. It should be to lift up the voices of people who don't have the platform that I have to make it so that more voices of color have the platform that I have and, and beyond. I mean, it is a big deal to give up the Bon Appetit video platform, but at the same time, it wasn't paying me that much. And all of us video talent have our own platforms that we can decide what we want to do with. I will be fine. It's like the people after me that I'm worried about. Well, and you, you setting that example of, and like sending that message is, is going to make an impact. I hope so. My partner is like sitting here get, getting his lunch. He's like, I've heard Priya <laughs> say, say something along these lines so many times. <laughs> um. Sorry, Seth. <laughs> He's heard everything. He could like have his own like Condé Nast gossip blog at this point. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is, this is our water cooler now, whoever is in our immediate bubble. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just all Seth. <laughs> I'm honestly, I'm pretty, I'm happy. I'm not with my parents. I feel like this would have been like, yeah, this, this would have been a lot for them to deal with, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just trying to talk anything that's like, like, do you think they would have agreed with you on, on a lot of the things that, that you wanted to do and, and believed, or would you think they would have pushed back? I mean, I spent all of quarantine pretty unhappy doing video. And I was like pretty vocal to them about how unhappy I was. And they grew up in a generation of like, well, you've been given this amazing opportunity and you should be grateful for that opportunity. And I do wonder if they would have like encouraged me to stay. But ultimately when I did, did leave, they were super, super supportive and they agreed that I made the right that's, choice. That's so relatable. And I'm really glad that, um, that they came around. It would have been uh, tough to be on opposite sides of that. They, they sound really, really supportive, genuinely. They're really supportive. I mean, they were also the ones when I was like, so tired of shooting video for something I didn't care about. They were like, you need to smile in this video. You look miserable. <laughs> this is the Genius Recipe Tapes. We'll be right back. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beat in cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great in clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. 
You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. So this recipe, would would you mind just briefly describing this recipe and the story behind it? So this recipe, it's a green chili and cherry tomato pickle. It's a, a quick pickle. There's a whole category of condiments in Indian cuisine called achar. And the way that I remember achar, it was, you know, my great aunt putting, um, you know, fruits, vegetables, spices, oil in a jar letting it ferment for the entire summer and we'd have this like really amazing tangy spicy jammy condiment that we could put on everything but it takes an entire summer or at least a month and so my mom kind of uh wanted to come up with sort of a quick version of a pickle that she had grown up eating with a fruit called Coronda. It's like a tropical berry. And so she sort of liked the really sweet tart flavor of cherry tomatoes. And she liked what they tasted like fresh and didn't want to like compromise that fresh flavor. So she started with Bonchforan, which is this Bengali blend of fenugreek, nigella seed, cumin seed, black mustard seed, and fennel seed. You bloom them in oil while still whole because the texture is really key here. You add asphatita or hing, as we call it in Hindi. You blister some long green chilies. And then right at the end, you mix in cherry tomatoes, turn the heat off, transfer it to a container. And so you get these like blistered chilies, these crunchy spices, and the really like fresh, juicy, sweet tomatoes coated in this bitter, earthy, crunchy coating. And it's an amazing tomato salad, but you can also eat as a condiment for dal, any super stew. It's beautiful to look at. I mean, it's just, it, it is so summery. I always forget about it. And then it's tomato season. And then people like you remind me how perfect this is for tomato season. I feel like oftentimes people are like, the best thing to do with fresh tomatoes is to just leave them as is. But I actually think fresh tomatoes and spices is such a beautiful combination because the tomatoes are so sweet, because they're so flavorful. They stand up so well to these very, very intense aromatic spices. And it just ends up being such a dreamy combo. Definitely. And the fact that the tomatoes are like just barely cooked, warmed enough for the juice to escape and become a little bit of the dressing. But um, they still completely keep their shape and their texture. What were the ways that your mom would usually serve this? With dal chawal was was the main way. Um, when we were growing up, very often there was like a jar of a jar sitting on the table. And this was sort of, in, if instead of that, in the summer, we'd have this this fresh version. And, and you could literally have it with anything. We'd have it with dal. Say we had a side of matar paneer, alu gobi, we'd add a little bit to that like it's just one of those it just adds like a pop of brightness and flavor to anything let's just put it this way like I I really like can't think of a savory dish that this wouldn't go well alongside honestly the batch that I made yesterday we ended up we had some leftover uh 
roast pork that my parents had made while I was visiting them. And so we crisped some of that up in a pan and made quesadillas with it. And then just like every, every wedge of quesadilla just piled it on top and then, you know, dunked the quesadilla, like dragged it through all of the, the spicy, um, juicy dressing. It was excellent. Sounds really, really good. I feel like so much of Indian food, what makes Indian food so good is that it is like a study in balance. Like Indian food balances sweet with salty, savory, intensely savory with intensely sweet, you know, crunchy with creamy. Like so much of Indian food is about um, bringing together all these contrasting flavors and they somehow work. And this recipe kind of speaks to that mentality. Um, I know that you are a big proponent of using chonk in all kinds of different dishes. For anyone who's not familiar with that technique, would you mind just describing it and what you love about it? Sure. Um, it's just a way of, I want to say like sort of activating spi spices, but I mean, people make chonk with not just spices, they make it with other aromatics like garlic and onion as well. But it's literally just like you heat up fat, you add spices and or aromatics and or herbs, and the oil gets infused with the flavor of those spices. And the spices also like release their aromatics and their essential oils. So it's like this really nice symbiotic relationship where the oil gets more flavorful the spices you really you can like you get more out of like you can really get the flavor out of the spices and then on top of that you're getting some texture and fat too so it just is like everything you want wrapped up in one like I have made dishes where like I have exclusively seasoned them like put salt and then poured chunk over the top because it works so well and it all happens in like a flash in like less than a minute it all just like creeps explodes this this flavor that you can pour over things yeah it happens really fast and if it if you don't work fast enough your spices will burn which happened to me a lot early on in the cookbook process <laughs> <laughs> do you have any advice to keep people from burning their spices um if you're scared just like make your chonk on medium heat in the book i think i say medium high but just Start on medium if you're a beginner. If you're scared, it'll take a little extra time, but you won't burn your spices. My mom makes her chunk on high heat, and I don't think I'll ever get there. <laughs> I don't. I don't even want to try. It's just. It's just showing off at that point. <laughs> the punch foreign. We were going to get back to talking about that. How else would you? What does your mom use it, or how else would you recommend people using it if once they have this combination of the five different seeds? There's a recipe in the book for a um, mango longi, which is like a green mango, like thick jammy chutney. Um, it goes really well with that. Like I would say, like really like sweet and like high acid fruits and vegetables. Ponch foreign stands up really nicely too. That's why we paired it with tomatoes in this particular condiment. Um, you can use it as a chonk for dal. Um, you can also use it as you can bloom them and then use them as a base for um, a sabzi, like sauteed vegetables. Um, you could drizzle, you could make a chonk and drizzle it on top of a soup. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the possibilities are really endless. Um, the other day, or this wasn't the other day, I don't, I don't remember when this was, but I roasted some asparagus and then 
bloomed these spices and put that on top. That sounds amazing. And do you have any other places that you like to order from? So this is not an ad at all, but I just discovered it a few weeks ago. But this spice company called Spicewala, they sell Bonchforan already mixed up, like the blend of five spices in a little canister. So you can, it's like, it's a classic, it's a classic blend. Like it's as classic as like, say like Zatar, um, where like this combination of, of spices is, is at least in, in parts of Eastern India, it's like quite universal. So like if it were me, I would just buy the combo because it's not ground or anything. It's just the whole spices mixed together. Um, and then you just don't have to measure anything out. Cause like, honestly, the most stressful part of this recipe is you have to like put your spices out and have them ready to go. Because when I was testing the book, I would like put my, like put my little spoonful of fenugreek seed. And then I'd be like fumbling in my jealousy. And my mom would be like, the fenugreek seeds are burning. <laughs> you really have to like toss everything in at the same time. Otherwise things will start burning. So I would say Spicewalla is great. Calustians is great. Um, I would say the biggest thing here is uh, don't use ground. Like you, you're going to need the cumin seed and not the ground cumin. Like there are recipes in my book where I'm like, if you only have ground cumin, that's fine. But here the whole spices and like the crunch of that whole, of the whole spices is really important. So go, go with whole. Is the next recipe you're really excited to cook for yourself or what are you making for yourself for dinner tonight? For dinner, I am making, uh, I'm making, it's like it's a sort of I'm, this is kind of a mysterious dish that I need to look into the origins of. If people know the origins, please tell me. It's called wolansam, and it's sort of a Korean take on a Vietnamese uh, spring roll. Um, so it's fresh uh, rice paper rolls, and I stuff them with sautéed king oyster mushrooms, pan-seared tofu, uh, cucumber, um, grated carrot basil cilantro you like tightly wrap that up and you sort of dip it in like a knock mom type sauce and i don't know what makes it korean versus vietnamese but it's i'm I'm sort of looking into it and researching it because i'm working on a cookbook with the chef david chang and it's something that he makes for his family but he also doesn't know the origin so we are researching the history and trying to understand how koreans adapted this vietnamese dish that sounds really delicious. You're, you're recipe testing it tonight? I'm not. I, I've, I have recipe tested a million times. I just love it so much and make it like once a week. Amazing. Um, and do you know what um, Seth's going to be baking next? He just made a, uh, this is so good. It's a passion fruit tart with a ginger snap crust and lemon pastry cream on top that he like piped very elegantly. Yeah, we'll be having that for dessert. I'm very excited. Wow, you, that's for is that for um, dinner and dessert tonight that you just described? Yeah, this is dinner and dessert tonight. Okay, I'm very jealous because I'll probably be having quesadillas. I'm very <laughs> <laughs> well. Quesadillas sound great too. It's just like I, I mean, my dinners are fine. Seth's desserts really like bring it home. When we have people over, I'm like, you know what? Even if my dinner doesn't 100% deliver. The dessert will like, will erase all mistakes. <laughs> the dessert is what, what people are probably going to be talking about. It always is. You know, it's like I spend all day on a pot of short ribs 
and all they can talk about is Seth's coconut cream pie. It's fine. I feel fine about it. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and have an amazing dinner and dessert. Thank you. And now I'm excited about dinner. I got to go out and buy some mushrooms. Thanks for listening. Our show was put together by Coral Lee, Gabriella Mangino, Alik Barsumian, Ayana Long, and me, Kristen McGlory. You can find all the Genius Recipes videos and stories at our site, food52.com. And if you have a Genius Recipe that you'd like to share, please email it to me at genius at food52.com. I am always hunting. If you like the Genius Recipe tapes, be sure to rate and review us. It really helps. See you next time.